Hey Houston, Khan's prices are invincible. That means prices have been cut low, as in amazingly low, as in won't be beat. In fact, we're backing it up with our low price guarantee. Invincible prices on appliances, furniture, electronics, mattresses, and more. Not invincible enough for you? How about free next day delivery on appliances, TVs, and mattresses? And payment options for everyone, whether you have good credit or building. Visit Cons today and find out what invincible feels like. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I've skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. We're taking a trip up the river into Cambodia for a secret mission as we talk the 1979 Coppola work, Apocalypse Now... This week on Zach on Film. Zach Zach on Film. Shit. Crap. I'm still on Zach on Film. This is a big movie, Zach. Yeah, it's a long movie. Yeah, but you know, it moves pretty quick. Um, I would uh, say that's true for about two-thirds of the film. Where did it slow down for you? Uh, once he made it to Marlon Brando. Oh, once he made it to Kurtz? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So, um, what do you know about Apocalypse Now, beyond the fact that we told you to watch it? And then you sat down and saw there were two versions, and you had to go, oh, which one are we supposed to watch? Are we supposed to watch <laughs> Apocalypse Now Redux uh, or the 76 before release? Before I watched Apocalypse Now, I knew very little about the film. I, had, I knew uh, about Walter Murch editing the film with his group of like 400 editors because they had like a million bajillion feet of film yeah and they only had like two months to put it all together it was a very short amount of time to edit it all together and that's one of the cool things from the editing standpoint in this goes is um normally you have a lead editor Mm -hmm. and then you have a bunch of assistants this one had like three different lead editors each of them were like okay you edit a reel and then after that's done you go on to this next one and whoever gets done first we'll just move on to the next one and get it done 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 which um is fascinating from a couple points that a style was still fairly present throughout the film Mm -hmm. it wasn't like a oh a new editor took over and now it's completely cut a different way. There's still like a consistency between each sections. And it also works having three different editors because um, the different um, bits of the film kind of st- can stand alone almost as mm-hmm. a short film for each yeah, because, major section. Yeah, for each major section yeah. kind of has its own own little bit. Yeah. So uh, you got a chance to watch it. I did. I watched the entire movie. Some people say this is the greatest Vietnam movie ever. Um, let's see. Any other Vietnam movies have I watched <laughs> in my life? Was, that's what I was wondering. Um, Forrest Gump Full Metal Jacket. is in Vietnam mm. at one point. Mm-hmm. 
I have watched 30 minutes of Full Metal Jacket about five times. Just that intro scene. <laughs> first um, 30 or the last 30? First 30. Well, I just, all I know is the, the really funny part. The beginning. Um, right before they beat the guy senseless with bars of soap. I've watched up to that the a couple part. times. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Um, have you seen Platoon? I have not seen Platoon. Have you seen Hamburger Hill? Hamburger Probably Hill. Probably not. That one's pretty. No. That's uh, Clint Eastwood. Oh, nope. Haven't watched it. So this is the greatest um, Vietnam movie I have ever watched. Is it the greatest war movie you've ever watched? Mm, I mean, you know, we have seen. Yeah, uh, probably. We have seen uh, Magnificent Seven. Well, that's not a, uh, I really like a that war movie. movie. We've seen uh, um, Great Escape. I really didn't like that movie either. Um, war movies I have seen. Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. Black Hawk Down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gettysburg. Okay. Uh, what's that movie The with um, Mel Gibson? He's like all revolutionary and stuff. The Patriot. Oh, Patriot. Yeah. Patriot, Braveheart. That? Braveheart. You have seen Braveheart. Um, most of Braveheart. My dad used to watch that when I was little. And it was on two VHS tapes, which makes means it's a long movie. Yeah, um, I can't. I couldn't be positive if I've actually watched the entirety of that movie before. Um, where he gets drawn and quartered at the end. Yeah, Spoiler. no, I watched the part where they show their butts a lot because I think that's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> that I mean, I'm sure there's a couple of war movies I've seen. Uh, Tropic Thunder. It's a pretty funny war movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I I have this theory. I'm just going to kind of throw it out there, and I want. Want you guys to just uh, and it's just a theory. It's not like something I'm I'm fully committed onto. So this movie is so is very very influential um, as far as war movies go, and telling a war movie from a different point of view than heroic heroism, rah rah rah, the yeah. troops and bring them home. And you know, you look at all previous movies that involve war, uh, and you're going to see these the the soldiers built up as the hero. And uh, they can do no wrong or if they do wrong, like in um, what the frick is the movie with where they uh, tell Savalas and uh, um, they go, they have to go kill the, the Nazi. dirty dozen. The dirty dozen. Ever seen the dirty dozen? Uh, no, but it's all the Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> okay, so Inglorious Bastards, all the people that they use who are not, you know, these good guys that we're supposed to be rooting for are prisoners they're deviants they're whatever in this piece right Mm -hmm. then we get to this movie where there's questions about charlie sheen's character and there's definitely questions about brando's character as Mm -hmm. kurtz and then the whole everything everybody does just doesn't seem in character for what people think of as uh, soldiers Mm -hmm. right um and so i think this movie just like the godfather and just like scarface have influenced a lot of people into a certain um, not necessarily belief system, but way of thinking. I, I think Apocalypse Now has done that with all war movies going forward, where all war movies now don't have to show uh, the characters as necessarily these good, honorable people, but some of these guys are really messed up, like we saw in Full Metal Jacket, like you see in Hamburger Hill. Um, and there are probably a number of people who look at a movie like apocalypse now and say this is what the military is like this is why i'm going to go into the military 
because I want to do this kind of stuff. And I think then that also ends up being translated into video games <laughs> and video games. Then like your ghost recons or mm-hmm. uh, Titanfalls or whatever modern it is, warfares. modern warfares also then start to influence people into indoctrinating them into this killing notion of let's just kill and, and kill these bad guys. Don't question orders, just kill, kill, kill. Um, and that results in, um, situations that we're in now. Now I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just thinking along this line of this is that movie that plants that seed that changes how people think about being in the military. Interesting from what I thought when you started this, I thought, um, when you started saying apocalypse now influenced, Mm -hmm. um, like a social Mm -hmm. idea, right? I thought it was going to be that all soldiers of war are seriously screwed up in the head. No, because there are some... That's where I thought you were going. No, 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 no. Because there are some great soldiers out there, and I support our troops, and I think that they do a great job. I just think that there are some people that get into this mindset of, this is what it's like, and they intentionally go in thinking that I'm going to be these people that are chopping off heads and cutting off ears and that kind of stuff. And I thought from that point you were going to go, I don't want to be a soldier because... Yeah, these things I, I think you're these yeah, things I think your thesis, are, Stephen, is a, uh, I think, Stephen, your, your thesis would be a lot stronger if it doesn't start from Apocalypse Now, yeah, because yeah. it's yeah, uh, unless 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 I'm reading this movie completely differently, <laughs> this I mean, you know, he says it, the horror, the horror mm-hmm. and this movie mm-hmm. is horror. This yeah, movie is, is not. Right. Yeah. Right. That so shows that war is not glorious, that right. it's not glamorous. And that's why I would say this wouldn't be the best army recruiting. No, but I think that there are some people that are like, oh, you know, I don't fit into the Steve Rogers mold of sure. let's, you know, be good and, and do these things. Okay. I am somebody who's different than that. And this movie speaks to me just like Godfather or Scarface speaks to people as well, saying I can get into this Mm. I okay. I I get an understanding of where you're coming from. Um, so my idea is like the flight of the Valkyrie scene. Mm-hmm. So they're in the helicopters mm-hmm. and they're about ready to storm um, this point in the country. So you have this like super awesome. Like these guys are going to play this song. And they're going to go blow this place sky high. Right. So you have this like super like adrenaline pump. Like, Oh, this is going to be so cool. So many explosions mm-hmm. and uh, so many cool things are going to happen. Super big guns. And then you have to see the images of people just getting mowed, mowed down, down. And, and then for what up. ultimate reason? So they can surf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there's this juxtaposition well, of this super awesome, cool feeling of explosions faced with the reality of, horrible tragedy facing innocent people in a country mm-hmm, mm-hmm. torn by a war. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not glamorizing I I, war. No. But it's not glamorizing the... the That sentence started going somewhere. I think <laughs> your thesis has merit, but I think that we're looking at it specifically with results or, or as, it, as it affects war pictures, whereas mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from about 1967 to about Star Wars, that, that, you know, that post-classical right. Hollywood, the new wave directors, I think they kind of intentionally looked at the dark side of anything and yeah, everything. And exactly. I think that that inversion of the Audie Murphy, you know, golden superhero mm-hmm. 
soldier who can take out enemies with his two strong fists and his big gun. I think that, yes, that's definitely being overturned here and, you know, with with later stuff as well. But I think it's part of a greater um, surge of movies that all in that new Hollywood period try to invert the tropes of the mm-hmm. storytelling that we saw in the, you know, in the studio system of the right. 40s and 50s. Right. And you look at the so definitely, taxi driver fits into the same, mm-hmm, same mm-hmm, role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Taxi driver. Some of the other stuff we've looked at does as well, but I can't think of the names of the movies because, well, it's late and I'm an idiot. Well, but I mean, you look but, at, again, uh, but you look <laughs> at full metal jacket would never have been made possible if it wasn't for apocalypse now. Okay. Agreed. You wouldn't be able to see, um, you wouldn't first, be able to go ahead. First Matthew. blood. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to see that. First blood would not be possible. Um, one. Yeah. 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 So I think this is really kind of important in changing this, this notion and idea of, you know, what we can do with a war movie right now. MASH came out. I want right. to say before this, right in, um, what the hell year did MASH come 70, out? 72 or something. 73, 72. 72. So this came out like seven years yeah. before that. And this was looking at a satirical take on war. Um, one could also, right. uh, you know, and then you look at Catch-22, uh, which came out in 1970. Um, this one just kind of showed the idiocy of war, right? So MASH is a comedy. Uh, Catch-22 is this impossibleness of war. Uh, then you get into um, Apocalypse Now and it's showing you this is the real horrors of war. And then I think people latched yeah. onto that and just like, this is the way, you know, we have to make war movies <laughs> going forward because this is, we have to show the reality of it because people are going to compare everything that we do to Apocalypse Now and how can we make this uh, more intense. Mm-hmm. And I think you do see influences I, I, of I Apocalypse Now in video games. Yeah. Intense, I agree with. I don't necessarily believe that this movie shows us a heightened reality. No, uh, whether again, I've never never been in combat, never been under fire, and that is what that is. But I don't feel that this movie is about reality. I think that this whole this whole movie, from you know the first sequence of waking up under the ceiling fan and nearly losing your mind, is about being divorced from reality, mm. and. T- it's definitely, I mean, yeah, again, your central thesis is still strong. Yeah, but I don't and this know is that just this something is I'm noodling around with. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is the set in yeah. stone because, mm-hmm. I, as I said, I can be influenced either way on this. I'm just trying to piece it together and trying to figure out how mm-hmm. this fits in the greater scheme of our, our current social situation. Because that's one of the things that I think you need to look at when you're looking at creating art that has a commentary. And this certainly has right. a commentary mm-hmm, to it mm-hmm. um, because uh, that's going to be – going to impact our society in some way as well go ahead rodrigo i think i think what apocalypse now did and how it fits is um the uh, i think the u.s needed somebody to um put down how the country felt about vietnam Mm -hmm. you know and it's like how do we feel about vietnam and then some you know out comes apocalypse now it's like oh this is how we feel about vietnam Mm -hmm. this is this is what we went through. This is what we saw. This is like the 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 movie, um, the uh, the main character's journey, you know, down the river is kind of representative of the United States entering the war. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also kind of representative of of like the that soldier's journey, like kind of like every soldier's journey. You know, you go from 
combat to kind of uh, absurdly calm situations to a USO show to being attacked by a band of people who weren't even part of this whole thing to making like terrible mistakes in war. So it's kind of like that uh, every bit of war experience that you can kind of crammed into one mm-hmm. movie. And I mean, the war was barely over when this came out. Oh, yeah. The war officially ended the year this movie came out. So, I mean, it's something where I, I wonder if maybe uh, definitely our perspective of the Vietnam War is shaped by this movie. But I'm right. wondering if what mm-hmm. everybody everybody thought, what the common conception of that war was, started well, here and was shaped it could have been, although uh, certainly embedded reporters in Vietnam and seeing that stuff on television had a huge impact on people's view of the war and what was going on on the war uh, because they were just seeing what those reporters were capturing. In fact, there's a great scene in Apocalypse Now that that has Francis Ford Coppola in there as they're storming the beach. And, you know, uh, Martin Sheen is walking by and he looks over and there's the cameraman and the director and he's just saying, don't look at the camera, move through the shot, move through the shot, because that's what they're capturing to show at home to people. Mm -hmm. Um, So there may be a little bit of of shaping uh, that's going on there um, for sure uh, from this film and and people's reception to it. Um, Lost my train of thought there Uh, because I'm trying to. Mm. there's a concept I've been toying around with. It's, it's a concept that's been around for forever. And I think this is probably going to be a topic that we're going to have to approach. Um, as we wrap up this, this series, when we complete the full list of the Zach on film films, oh, man. Uh, and that's the idea of aesthetic entropy. And that kind of triggered from you, Matthew saying, you know, if, if, if people watching this movie were in, had their thoughts influenced by uh, the war influenced by right. this movie, and aesthetic entropy kind of touches on that. The minute that you capture something uh, in the present and release it, it's already automatically in the past. And the further away you are from that moment, um, the more skewed your mm-hmm. view is going to be of that. I mean, this film didn't even make it into um, the National Registry uh, and considered culturally, historically and aesthetically relevant until 2000 something. Uh, so it's a huge yeah. distance from from that time. Um so you guys might want to think about aesthetic entropy, this idea that the further away we are removed from this moment, mm. um, the less connected we are to it or the more biased our opinion is of that. Mm. And that the and I, art and stuff re- released around that same time influence our exactly. ideas of the situation the, more than what actually yes, happened. Yes. The, cult, the yeah. culture oh, and pop culture forms right. your opinion. Right. And I, I think that's an important thing to take into account, too. So so I got distracted by that. This movie that is happens. based on a book from like the 1800s called Heart of Darkness. OK. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And Coppola took it and uh, a T.S. Eliot poem and kind of mashed them together uh, to to kind of tell this tale. Now, Heart of Darkness talks about going up the uh, Congo River and trying to bring back ivory. And the fact that uh, the central narrator is um, is caught up in the story in these crazy situations and gets to the place where he's supposed to pick up this ivory and finds out that Kurtz has gone insane and proclaimed himself a god to all these people. Very much like Kurtz does here. I mean, it's the same kind of story. Uh, Heart of Darkness has been has has been attempted to be adapted multiple times. Uh, The very first time that it was adapted was by Orson Welles. Uh, We know him from Citizen Kane, Mercury Theater on the Air, War of the Worlds. Um, uh, the Magnificent Ambersons. 
Orson Welles first adapted this for Transformers movie. Transformers movie. <laughs> Family guy. Yeah, he, he was Unicron. He's. Uh, so he first tried to do it for uh, the radio, had a success of that. Uh, he later adapted it one more time into a radio play. Uh, but in between doing the two different versions of the radio play, right after War of the Worlds, Orson Welles was courted by Hollywood. And they're like, come to Hollywood, do whatever you want, do whatever you want. We'll give you lots of money, whatever project that you want. His very first project that he attempted with RKO Pictures was an adaptation of Heart of Darkness. And apparently he went down to South America and spent like $4 million. And this is in like 1939 $4 million trying to get Heart of Darkness off the ground and ultimately couldn't. I think he tried this two times oh. to get Heart of Darkness off, off the ground, couldn't, and then came back and wrote the script for Citizen Kane. And then delivered that as his first um, release picture from RKO Pictures. But he attempted to do Heart of Darkness, um, and then he did it for radio. And the second radio adaptation, they say, is the closest adaptation of what the film would have looked like if it were condensed down into 30 minutes. Um, some other people had attempted it. Uh, there was a television show that I think attempted to do it um, more following the the African uh, story. And then, of course, Coppola got a hold of it. And really, what is it? John Milies, uh, uh his name. Um basically said, hey, why don't you write this for me? Why don't you write a war movie? Those seem to be really popular right now. Said he'd pay him $10,000 and a whole bunch of money uh, later. And apparently, they this this went through so many revisions, there's about a thousand-page script that originally resulted from this. Um, and even then, it went back and, and was uh, reworked and reworked and reworked. At one point, because Coppola wasn't interested in this, he had approached George Lucas and said, George, you should you should direct this movie. But because of Lucas's involvement with American Graffiti and then immediately afterwards Star Wars and the popularity of Star Wars, he had to shelve that project. So finally, Coppola said, I will take this on and I will go to um, um, Malaysia for 17 months to put this movie together. And there is a great documentary I think you should watch, Zach, called um, Hearts of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse, which kind of chronicles the making of this mm. film from the production standpoint. I mean, at one point budget overruns happened because the entire production was and all the sets were washed away by a hurricane or a typhoon. Um, guess it depends on what part of the world sure. you're in. Uh, didn't Martin Sheen have a heart attack while filming? Martin Sheen had a heart attack. And my God, I keep forgetting every time I watch this movie, how much he and Charlie look alike. That really freaked me out for My a while. God, I was like, yes. why there are is scenes. he in this movie? Oh. He's not old enough to be in this movie at he this actually, time. Yeah. I think oh, he, he actually is, was he in this is movie. In the movie yeah. yeah, but not like the main character. Yeah. But there, I mean, there are scenes where you look and it's like, that's Charlie. No way, that's Charlie's dad 30 years ago. Uh, yeah, and, and if you've seen um, Platoon, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Char like, you, Charlie's <laughs> in you, you could just throw scenes of Platoon in here and you'd think <laughs> it was the same guy. Or if you've seen Hot Shots Part Two, <laughs> where they're going down the river and they see Martin on the other boat, and then Charlie Sheen is like, "Hey, I loved you in Wall Street." <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. So we haven't really talked that about the plot of this. Happen. Haven't really talked about the plot of this movie. We talked about some production aspects of this movie and you, some fascinating tidbits. You kind of can't. Well, I mean, you kind of. Oh, a, Harrison Ford is in this freaking movie. Ford. Lawrence Lawrence Fishburne, Lawrence Fishburne, Lawrence in this Fishburne movie. was 14 when they started yeah. filming this movie. Yeah. And he was like 22 by the time they hey, finished. 17, yeah. <laughs> Robert Robert Duvall. Oh man, he's oh, the yeah. great from I mean, MASH. You you hear um, Dennis Hopper. Uh, yeah, yes. Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper scared me. I'd forgotten oh, he was yeah, in yeah. this. 
what's really crazy is when people quote lines and they uh, misquote lines from movies, uh, you know, most of the time people mm-hmm. will say, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It smells like victory. Well, what they're doing is they're taking the beginning of that long piece of dialogue and the ending of that piece of dialogue uh-huh. and chopping out all the min- middle parts and then smashing them all together. Or as we like to call it, that's called the, the edited for TV version, which yeah, yeah, yeah. is an entirely different matter. And what a what a jerk that guy is, by the way. Duvall's character? Robert Robert Duvall's character is such a jackass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so such a beautiful performance. Every word out of Kilgore's mouth just makes me want to hit him with sticks. Oh, yeah, because he's so he seems so detached from what he's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, we're going to play this music because it scares detached. the hell out of him. And then he, he lands he's and he's arrogant. just standing there and arrogant is like, get out there and surf, surf, surf yeah. Vietnam. They break uh, both ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just Charlie, so don't surf. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like a really, a really great character in every way because you know they, he gives you like that. That's the the narration kind of gives you that snippet, right? It's like he he know he like he feels that he's gonna get out of this war without taking a single shot. Yeah. Like no one, no one can hurt him. And like there's explosions around the beach, and he doesn't flinch. Everyone else dies for cover multiple mm-hmm. times, and mm-hmm. he is just like unfazed by it. And he is it, immortal. It's it, the thing about it is he doesn't come across as crazy necessarily the way that I don't want to say every other character in the film does, but lots of characters in this film have moments of El Bonzo Seiko. And Duvall's character just feels like so he, he's he's protected by the air, the armor of his own arrogance. He knows these little people cannot hurt him. And so he will stride across the beaches with his hat. Doesn't even put on a helmet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just hate, hate that guy. Hate that guy so much. Well, and then, I mean, then you've got most of the uh, action takes place on the, on the river boat or mm-hmm. on the boat that they're on uh, the patrol boat. And so PBR. we get introduced to it's short for Plap, Pabst blue ribbon. Actually. Yes. Uh, we get introduced to uh, Lance. We get introduced to the chief. Who's mm-hmm. the captain Albert hall. We get introduced to chef and we introduce, get introduced mm-hmm. to uh, Mr. Clean Lawrence Fishburne's character. And they just seem again, all just totally detached, especially uh, Lawrence Fishburne's character is just kind of in it and doesn't really care. Although at one point, you know, he's confronted with an intense moment and freaks out and pulls the trigger mm-hmm. too soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you have people like, um, which one is the uh, surfer? It's yeah. Lance, Lance is the is surfer, surfer, right? Yeah. Lance is the surfer. I mean, that yeah, guy's Lance on drugs the, the entire time. Yeah. Well, he, um, when did he start? Well, he tripped ass. He started tripping acid after yeah. after the invasion of the beach. I think he. Yeah. I think that freaked him out because he was basically in a relatively soft position. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because everyone thought of him so highly as this world class surfer, and then suddenly he's confronted with this insanity of storming storming the right. uh, the beach, and yeah, you never, know, Kilgore telling him to go out and surf and never recovers. Yeah, after. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it turned into a, eventually a hilarious character to a point. If you just like remove the fact that he's kind of having a mental breakdown mm-hmm. due to his drug use, due yeah. to his terrified nature of what's really happening around him, but that he ends up painting his face all camouflage, we so we can't see them when he's mm-hmm. on a boat. So that doesn't make any sense. Arrows are being fired at him. <laughs> and he just takes them and puts them in his hair. Yeah. And then eventually yes. they make it to 
uh, Brando's compound. And mm-hmm. He's just kind of like I was watching with Aubrey. And she's like, where'd that Lance guy go? And you just see him like wandering, yeah, wandering around. around. He's yeah, like, yeah. what is he doing? Totally, totally yeah. flipped out. Yeah, totally just got La- out of his mind. La- Lance comes apart. He starts to come apart earlier, but he really, it, once once clean gets shot, Lance just mm-hmm. slowly dissolves into, into non-characterness to the point where by the time they actually reach the compound, Lance is almost a prop. He doesn't really have any lines. Yeah. And he follows Willard, but he doesn't, say or do much of anything it's like he's just he's completely passive he's gone yeah. lance is gone by the time that happens and it's really disturbing because he kind of in early on gets a little more character development we know where he's from we know what he does he you know he has a little more backstory at the beginning and it's really scary to see that character just slowly disappear into his own head and mm-hmm. just go away and uh, that's a as a thing I like kind of about the boat setting, especially as they go farther up the river. Is that you see Lance um, recede due to the stress of what's going around him, and then you see uh, uh, Chef kind of do the same thing, but in a different manner, where he gets uh, Lance implodes. Chef kind of explodes. Yeah, to a, yeah, where he sees that this is all wrong and wants to like be emotional about it not just yeah, rescind yeah. inside himself but needs to talk about how we just don't need to be stopping random people on the river They're, these are just people trying to make a living and we don't need to be doing something and then really freak out when our actions of just just talking or meeting this family ends in horrible bloody mess mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh god who's the yeah. most who's the most sane person on that boat uh i'd say the chief, yeah, because the chief dies early enough in his character arc to where he has not come a part of the seams. Mm-hmm. He's starting to. He's starting to unravel. Mm-hmm. But when chief dies, he's still he's still in control mostly of his faculties, and the fact that he tries to kill Willard as he's dying, you know, kind of indicates that he's he's reaching the end of his rope. But I don't think mm-hmm. he actually got there. Mm-hmm. So, what do you guys think of the? this overall idea of here's a soldier that's kind of gone off mission and now we're just going to go and kill him, even though he's a decorated hero and very well respected. And does that, is that an odd part of the story, especially when he's gone so far off mission, he's is. actually gone into what the Cambodia. No. Um, it's, it's not just disturbing. It's, it's kind of distasteful for me. And I'm, I'm not necessarily a person who reads into these things. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't watch these films expecting a, a beautiful glowing recommendation of American military life, but it's really distasteful for me at the beginning when, you know, Willard is there and Willard in his very first scenes is shown to be very off balance, very off kilter. And the the whole non conversation about did, did are you aware of a mission that killed fifteen people, sir? I'm not aware of that mission, and and if I were aware of it, I couldn't say anything about it. With that Harrison Ford interaction, disturbs I, me because they are sending him in, and they are basically telling him without telling him, right? There with extreme prejudice, go in and kill this man, right? Your official orders are to deny the official order. To go in and murder this man. Well, and I think that's what's so weird about that interaction. Why it feels so uncomfortable is because 
it's so very matter of fact. There's no real deep meaning mm-hmm. on should we be killing one of our own? Mm-hmm. You know, what has this person done? It's just like, nope, your orders are to go and kill. Go and kill this guy. He's gone crazy. You don't ask yeah. anything about it. Although as the journey continues, uh, Willard starts to learn more and more about Kurtz from reading documentation and listening to radio broadcasts mm-hmm. and those kinds of things to where he almost starts to feel empathy for the character right. uh, in everything that's been going on. And then he gets there and it's, right. you know, total, total crazy town. Uh, Rodrigo, what were you going to say? I think what I, go ahead. I, I think that, um, it's, it's a, it's very central and important. The idea of this, um, American soldier who goes, uh, who goes missing and basically becomes this, uh, insane God King. Um, it's 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 obviously very important to the to the story because as you said as we follow him uh down the river or up the river I don't remember um you see Willard um begin to empathize with him more and more and more and as he reads more of his story the crazy choices that he's made begin to make sense to him mm-hmm. and perhaps in a more frightening uh moment uh, it begins to make sense to us right you know we are we're there along for the ride and kurt starts to make a lot more sense when we start seeing the the war and the carnage that you get as you go farther and farther down the river after after seeing and having you know the the interaction with kilgore you kind of don't blame Kurtz for going off mission mm-hmm. and that that in itself as you know as an audience member is disturbing and by the time we get to the point where we find out Willard finds out that he's not the first man who was sent in to do this yeah and the last guy who was sent in is now Kurtz's lancer right yeah that 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 is an amazingly disturbing moment and that's one of the moments in this movie where I'm just like that's a that's like a thunderbolt moment where we get to the outpost and the bridge, uh, the whole bridge sequence. I well, I think it's a, it's at that point. Yeah, it, it really sequence. is not a it's not a great. I mean, from a story point, it really is to the point in the film where the story where everything has just evolved to chaos, and we understand that mm-hmm. doesn't matter what we do. This is insanity. Mm-hmm. This is just we're doing it because we're doing it. There's no leadership, zero leadership uh, going on in the war, and mm-hmm. and everything is just insanity Mm -hmm. and it's that last moment before you step from insanity and you pass through the gates of hell the 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 natives on the on the boat that just you know open up like a big gate and let them into to this ninth level of hell it's just like okay you've gone past the insanity mark you're ready to go meet king crazy um i'm not Mm -hmm. a big fan of that scene either the Mm. the last american outpost right right yeah I, um, yeah, I guess from, see, a, from a story standpoint, it, I know what you're saying, but I thought this scene as a whole, um, actually kind of liked it. Well, I mean, yeah, I from mean, the, there, and there's a lot to like about uh, the cinematography I, 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 and the editing and everything. Mm-hmm. Right. I have to, I think this is a good time as any for me to go here because when I say I hate that scene, this is a very, very complex, emotional and, and, psychological interaction for me because I will tell you right now, I find this film to be brilliant. I find it to be exquisitely put together. I find there are parts of it that are just 
genius. There, there are levels of this film that I cannot believe they managed to put together. And especially having seen the documentary that they put together under the circumstances that they did. This is a really excellent movie. This is a great film and it is rightfully venerated as a great film. I hate this movie. I have always hated every single moment of this movie. As much as I know that it is a, the work of a master craftsman doing something that is really, really, I think culturally important and very well structured the, the the feelings and the the just the process of watching this movie I don't like I don't want to go where this movie wants to take me and from the very first time I saw this movie I had problems because in some ways I'm considered to be a contrarian I I am a guy who will once in a while say well I don't like that it's too popular and I, I really try to avoid that. And this is not what's happening with this movie, because I admit that this movie is a crowning achievement. Well, it's kind of a shame it came so early in his career, but I cannot <laughs> stand watching this film. Well, Every, I think there's a I mean, is the, it, and it's because it makes you uncomfortable. Is that it? I mean, you can have something that's really, really great that makes you feel uncomfortable. It makes mm-hmm. you question the nature of war and the horror of war and mm-hmm. what. Uh, soldiers are uh, asked to do or forced to do or ordered to do uh, and their coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can look at a movie and be very distasteful, uh, find the material very distasteful, but find it still very, very, very beautiful. Hmm. And I, I do have that. I think I liken it to what Berthold Brechte called the, I believe it's Verfremdungs effect. The, the distancing effect or if my german is off the estrangement effect where the work is trying actively to alienate the audience and when i watch movies you know i've talked about watching sad movies and listening to sad music sometimes because it's nice to just tap into that and be a little melancholy and i'll watch scary movies alone at night to go hey i'm going to be i'm going to be scared now i'm going to go and watch paranormal activity and i know that there's a lot of jump scares and and cheap shots but it's scary it bothers me this film is dragging me into a portion of the psyche that i'm not necessarily comfortable sitting in and it takes me there without even without a character that i can that i can cling to the closest you get is maybe mr clean who's a drug addict who gets murdered halfway through the movie the moment where, you know, Chef is like, I'm I'm Chef and I'm the comic relief. And then he like murders five people. I'm like, oh, well, that didn't work for me. This is just a movie that is it's off putting to me. It's it's difficult to watch. And while I appreciate the effect and I, you know, I admit that it is, you know, it was put together to do that and it does its job really well. I wouldn't watch it. If it weren't for Zach on film, wouldn't have watched yeah. it again because it's not a movie. If I want to go and be, you know, traumatized by the horror of war, I'll watch Full Metal Jacket. Sure. Because that that Kubrick perspective, that kind of let me wrap you up in crazy, but you're kind of you're in crazy. You are not being forced to try and figure out crazy. For me, and this is a problem that I have with a lot of Coppola's work, is Coppola his perspective to me comes across as, and this is going to sound lunatic, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. He, his, his movies feel like they have a smugness to them. 
his his movies feel like they're they're Not kind of distantly. Yeah, well, they're, I mean, that's they're, legit. I, I wouldn't they, say that's a, crazy. There's a distancing effect because if, if Stanley Kubrick, if you look at like The Shining, he throws you into the madness, and you got you got your Jack Nicholson, and the madness is there, and you can you can go crazy, you can disappear down that rabbit hole. But this film puts you in the crazy, and it kind of makes you almost empathize with the craziest character, and then anytime you start getting feeling like you've kind of got your feet under you and intentionally so knocks your feet out from under you. I cannot stand. And this is again, just me. The scene where they kill the yak. <laughs> I am all, I've, I always look away. I, I'll watch oh, a yeah, Saw movie and go. Yeah, because I the difference between a Saw away. movie is that's fake. And here they're mm-hmm. actually killing a yak. Right. They're actually beheading the creature. Yes. Water Buffalo. Yeah. They're, they're killing what whatever it is. They're killing the the, the animal, <laughs> the poor water buffalo. The 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 and I don't know. The only thing I could there's think of just, during I uh, mean there's something about the perspective. The only thing I could think of during that uh the killing of the water buffalo was well mm-hmm. I'm not gonna remember the, the name of the film now, but one of the Eisenstein films. Oh yeah, yeah. Where um they're but they're butchering Bonchon. cattle yeah, yeah, um, yeah. while they're mowing down people running mm-hmm. away from soldiers. Mm-hmm. Yep. I guess if you look at like the the movies of the seventies, you kind of have, and I'll I put everything in a very careful box of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, where in the seventies you had Woody Allen who was your master splinter filmmaker, and you had George Lucas who was Michelangelo, you had Steven Spielberg who was kind of your Leonardo, and weirdly Coppola as the Raphael type, but being a Raphael type myself, when Coppola makes a movie. There's just something about it that that rubs me the wrong way, and none is so wrong way rubby or so very 100% Coppola-tastic as this one. And so, you know, when I say I hate it, it's like saying this this movie is really awesome and wonderful, and it's so not for me that I just – I wish it had a face so I could punch it in the balls. Rodrigo, you've been uh, trying to jump in and to say a few things. What What are, what are some thoughts that you want to share? I think that, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's accurate. The apocalypse now is, is masterful at making people feel uncomfortable. Um, and it is, it's really crazy. There's actually, um, this, uh, essay floating around somewhere and I couldn't find it before the show. Um, but it talks about how like heart of darkness is evil. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm like like supernaturally evil and that in in writing it uh let's see what's his uh, conrad um in the process of writing it and in the process of living through it because it's based on his experiences kind of right. impacted everything around him negatively and how um uh, while making apocalypse now um which is itself a movie about following this person down into this terrible jungle mm-hmm. and in the process going crazy coppola kind of did that himself um and you know it, it kind of talks about like the uh the um the expense and the problems for the country for uh the, where was it for like in in manila and all the stuff that that um, Coppola was 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 causing and kind of like this the the ruckus that this movie was causing. So I think it's 
Uh, obviously, I don't I don't necessarily believe it, but it's it's kind of a, a cute idea that um, Apocalypse Now and its 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 predecessor, Heart of Darkness, are kind of these these stories in which you kind of follow the the trail of madness and go crazy yourself. Mm-hmm. And so, when you're watching this movie, it's a movie that asks you to go crazy. It is a movie that asks you to either look look at the the horror of of war and either say i accept you and now i'm crazy mm-hmm. or i'm a you know i'm a terrible person now or rejected and i think um a lot of us end up rejecting it and i'm not saying that you can't like apocalypse now no. uh, and not be and not turn into a, a crazy homicidal maniac um but i i think that um there are aspects of this movie that you can like but but the fundamental um I, like there's something fundamentally alien and and dark and and scary to the movie, and I think the majority of people who watch it can appreciate it, but ultimately feel very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and maybe that's, you know, maybe that's one of the good things that comes out of this is if you're sitting there going, "Man, is there something wrong with me?" and then you watch <laughs> this movie and go, "No, I'm perfectly normal." <laughs> You know that, or at least be, I'm not as far gone as yeah, yeah. Dennis Hopper. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so maybe that's one of the good things that can come out of watching a movie like this that has disturbing, uh, dark black uh, themes and tones to it. Uh, let's yeah. give a shout out to our associate producers for this episode of Zach on Film, really quick. And they would be Brian Riley, James Roshaw, Peter Walker, Sean Brown, Jenna Martin, Paul Wade, Kevin Hope, Dustin Cochran, Richard Kubik. Matthew Goins, Richard Caracas, Caracas, serious. Stephen Bauer, Jesse Ayers, Joel Whitland, Tyler Gibson, Justin Lobby, Kent Dow, Daring Heineson, Ian Hamilton, Benjamin Dignan, and Derek Chen. Thank you so much for your support, Major Spoilers, helping us do all that we do do. <laughs> Zach, is this a is is Apocalypse Now a pro war movie or an anti war movie? Um, mm. Apocalypse Now is a war movie. Um, I don't know. Um, it sounds like a trick so, question. Zach. Um. Well, I mean, way. I don't, know if, I don't know if there is a right or wrong answer because I, people view this movie as both yeah. a pro, pro-war pro movie and an anti-war movie. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of people – this is just going to be a long way to get to my answer. Okay. When, Can't be any worse than my, uh, than my idea that I threw out of the, <laughs> the show. So when people when – when a person makes an, a movie – Based on any event that people have a personal stake in, right? Be it a true story or narrative or something, there's a personal stake in it. the The audience wants it to reflect their experience with the subject matter. They mm-hmm. want it to be mm-hmm. real and to what there is, and for any film. So, having never been in a war personally. Uh, I've seen footage of wars. I've uh, done some history stuff in school about wars and stuff. Um, war does not seem like the most pleasant 
place to be at any given time in the history of the world. That war seems horrible and horrible things happen. So to a, to make a movie that reflects the horribleness of war gives an aspect of pro-war in that um, people can relate to it better actually been there that um mm. that this is this is what we went through and this is not sugar-coated in any way to make us feel happy about uh, whatever it is the war was about but this reflects people's real experience so that would be an anti-war film um <laughs> i if you're if you're showing the brutality of war then that's an you know if you're showing uh, a lack of leadership okay so yeah, and but what I meant by pro-war would be pro-soldier. You know what I'm trying to say is that mm-hmm. it's not so someone has to go through Vietnam War mm-hmm. and the horrible right. things happen and they did it because they are in the military. So you, and their this job is like is, your public service announcement for be aware what you could be getting into. Um, no, this is my um speaking about people that are in the military um, choose to go into profession that um, oh I see what you're I see what you're saying now is they choose uh, to go into this profession yeah. and we thank them all for their support yes. and service but they are forced to put up with a lot of crap they are yes they okay. are forced I to follow orders <laughs> that um, yeah. most people would not be able to carry out but they are trained in a way that um, they okay. are able to do that this out for the betterment of the country. Okay, I see where you're getting at. And now. so to have yeah. that reflected in a everything is nice in war uh, is not true to their story. Okay, all right, Matthew, anti-war I think or pro-war? Like, like our discussion of Star Wars, where you made the compelling argument that Star Wars is not science fiction. I don't read this as pro or anti-war. I don't read this as a war movie. Epistemologically speaking, this is a morality play to me where good is represented by truth and evil gets into weird gray areas because everybody in this film is obscuring one type of truth or another. So amorality is basically shown as either denying the truth, flat out lying, obscuring the truth, sending someone in to do something that we don't want anyone to find out about. So I don't necessarily think that this is a pro-war or anti-war movie. I think that this movie is about truth versus the immorality of inveiglement and the endless, you know, lies and cycle of lies. So I feel like the 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 war part of it kind of complicates issues because it does raise questions like Zach said of if you say I'm anti-war, what are you saying about those people Mm -hmm. who go off and fight Mm -hmm. in the war? And it's not about those people. It's not about the war. This movie is about the literal heart of darkness, which is lying to others, lying to yourself, lying to yourself about others, lying to others about yourself. And while that may sound like my usual riffiness, that's actually not a riff. That's four, to me, separate things from just from the perspective of looking at it inside your own head. And that may be, you know, what Rodrigo was getting at is it's this movie puts you in the head of characters that you never want to be in the head of. Again, 
you you don't want to see the perspective that Francis Ford Coppola is showing us mm-hmm. here. So I would say not a pro-war or anti-war movie. Rodrigo? Not a war movie. I think it's interesting. Um, I was I, I did not realize that there were two different camps. I didn't yeah, realize I didn't, that some I people thought that this was a pro-war movie. Yeah. And that some people think it's an anti-war movie. And that's I, I would compare this to uh, what we talked about when we did uh, Do the Right Thing that uh, Zach brought up, that when people interview uh, Spike Lee and they say, well, did he do the right thing? Only white people ever wonder if uh, he did the, the right thing, right? So it's like mm-hmm. their, um, their thought processes and um, life experience leads them to experience the movie in a radically different way. So I'm uh, I'm I'm kind of uh with Matthew in the sense that I don't think that this uh, this movie is so big that it doesn't bother with trifling things like is war good or bad um I would uh, you know I would fall strictly in the camp of this being an anti-war movie but I think it's uh, it's only because everything that happens in it is so distasteful mm-hmm. to me mm-hmm. um but I think that um in other ways uh you know it it shows the the beauty of like carnage in a very morbid kind of like um uh, very nihilistic way Mm. so i can see it as kind of a a love letter to like the 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 beautiful pointlessness of war Mm. um so i can i can see that aspect of it but a strict pro-war movie i don't have i don't have the stomach to to say yes yeah i can't yes that is what it is i have a tough time believing that this is a pro war movie either but apparently people who believe that this is a pro war movie show that um that this is the glorification of battle and our um asserting american supremacy over uh quote unquote the enemy that sounds insane makes this a pro war movie uh, well uh, yeah well but you i'm not saying that's my thought no, I, no, I, no, I, no, I, see no. this, I see this as an no. anti war movie look how horrible wars are but, especially in the context of this being vietnam you know, look at right. how crazy Vietnam is. We shouldn't have been there. This is the kind of crap that went mm-hmm. on. But look, if you look at the the average director's war type picture or any picture for that matter, if you had a sequence like what happens with Kilgore in the Air Cav in any other movie, you know, if, for instance, again, and I keep going back to Full Metal Jacket, which I like better because it doesn't, you know, break my heart as yeah. much, but. You get the sequence with the door gunner where he's like, you easy, you shoot women and children because you don't lead them as much. That's a horrifying moment. Mm-hmm. But it's not a glorifying moment. Whereas when Bill Kilgore sweeps in with 1st Battalion, 9th Air Cav, playing Ride of the Valkyries and emptying out that village and blowing away any and all that would dare to stand in his path, you can see the perspective of someone who thinks, well, I'm supposed to sympathize with him. I'm supposed to look at this, this great white conqueror coming in with his superior technology and wiping out these poor bastards. I can see a perspective of someone who would say, I'm expected to believe that this is good and right. 
and that the, you know what he is showing here is something that is wonderful. He's coming in and he's killing these people in their hometown so that he can surf on their beach. Mm-hmm. You know, you can definitely see a perspective of someone watching this movie and trying to think, who am I supposed to root for? Right. And thinking that Coppola wants you to root for Wild Bill Kilgore or wants you to root for Ben Willard, who mm-hmm. goes in and kills an innocent woman because she's delaying his mission. Yeah. Or, well, you know, and, and I mean, even even more than that, it's like w- whenever you look at the movie, you say, who has the power here? Um, sometimes, yeah, there's there's fire raining in from the shores. And yeah, in that, at that moment, the uh, Viet Cong has the power. But um, most of the time, it's Kilgore. It's Kurtz. You know, Kurtz goes to war and becomes a god basically yeah so i can i can see it and and i honestly i mean i i this this might be a jerk thing to say but i think people that say that this movie is pro-war because it shows that uh, kind of american like you know uh, going in and setting themselves up as um as as the kind of like superior to the to the natives is missing the point that I feel that the movie treats it with complete disgust. Mm-hmm. I think that the things that um, that Kurtz is doing are supposed to be very unappealing. Yes, he takes over this village. Yes, he kind of rules over these natives who are uh, portrayed as very primitive, um, but. Everything about the movie tells you this is not right. This man is wrong. This mm-hmm. man shouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. He's a cancer on on Cambodia and on the war and on the world. There, you know, speaking of Kurtz being a cancer, um, and and the things that happen, Brando Brando shows up to set like five million pounds overweight. <laughs> Not what, not the actor that they hired. More than fifty pounds. No, he was. He was. I. I I think they wanted to say something like a hundred, two hundred, or one hundred and fifty pounds overweight, something like that. Um, at the time, they were thinking that they were going to get a pretty slim person, uh, because apparently they were expecting Sky Masterson. Well, the end sequence apparently was supposed to be more of a fight than than what we got, Mm -hmm. but he shows up overweight, out of shape, hadn't learned his lines. Uh, couldn't compete with the heat. He was hired to come in for one month uh, to do his stuff. And um, the fact that he was so overweight, they really Coppola really didn't want to show that in the film. I mean, mm-hmm. here's supposed to be a soldier that is storming in and beheading, beheading his enemies left and right. You can't have that in a fat, overweight soldier. And so they had to have him wear black, shoot him in the dark with, you know, just the light hitting his face in certain places and and trying to sculpt his his face and his body with light so you didn't see how horribly out of shape he was at that time which i think is yeah really trying to take a negative and trying to make the best of the situation yeah. but it may have hurt the film in the end yeah i thought that this is the first time we ever I don't see know. brando's character is he comes into like the compound and mm-hmm. he's like on the bed you don't really mm-hmm. see all of his face at all the right. time i thought and i always think wrong of movies what they're going to do was that we didn't really get a good look at his face mm-hmm. For like that entirety of that scene, and then I mean, we see him later on, uh, full shot of his face and body and everything. I thought, uh, are they going to do a thing where they don't really show his face, and it ends up being this like any soldier 
could have eventually ended up at this mm. point mm-hmm. where it, the 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 person of of him didn't matter so much of the idea that right. given under, under these circumstances Anybody anyone could, could have ended up like this. It would have been interesting. Would have been an interesting take on that. I think that though, for me, the the hard edge light and darkness, and the fact that we never get a full look at Kurtz. I mean, we never see the man. Yeah, makes him the so so dis- so disturbing, so creepy, so scary. So you know, and there there's the point where. I'm seeing this for the first time whenever I saw it. I don't know, 1995. And I'm thinking that when, you know, when Martin Sheen gets up in there, that Kurtz is just going to come up and just kill him. That mm-hmm. he's going to get in there and Kurtz is going to rip him to shreds because he's, I mean, he's this dark figure and he he's only visible when he wants to be visible. I think that for me, at least, it really helps the mystique of that character. It makes him so much more terrible than it would be if it were just, you know, Jor-El standing there with a big bald head. <laughs> well, and there's, there's lots of... Yeah. yeah, there's lots of ways you can well, read... Well, he made a hat out of his script, see? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's wiping his sweat with it. That's yes, what he's sir. actually wiping his sweat with. Uh, but, you know, there's lots of ways to read that. Um, if you see the darkness and that madness... It's it's like literally he lives in it. He lives in this madness that he has created and he has to come out of it to talk to the main character. Like he has to poke his head out of mm-hmm. the darkness. Mm-hmm. Like he's so consumed by it that he kind of needs to take human form to come talk to this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is a great example, uh, Zach of a filmmaker faced with a problem and really making the best of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, let's turn him into a shadow person um, so that we don't have to see all of the donuts that he's eaten. Well, and I think that's one of the interesting <laughs> things, because if this were a movie made today and you did that, people would interpret the character of Kurtz as having transformed into literally a shadow demon, uh, some kind of of you know spiritual monster mm. that literally has to take the form of man and and like you said poke his head out um but then i back then i think it's just how do we cover up this guy oh yeah totally um has, has anyone seen apocalypse now redux no what so, year did that come out that's 2001 i believe um yeah 2001 so I- I want to say that the first time I saw this movie was a different cut than we saw this week. Well, I don't know if you saw a television. But I don't there know was a, if that was a there was a re-release in um, I want to say the mid '80s where they added some stuff on um, and took some stuff out. Did Maybe they that's add the one that they you add saw. The closing credits. The closing <laughs> credits happened in the um, 35 millimeter theatrical release that came after, and I think it was on one of the early uh, VHS uh, copies of that. Um, the one that we watched, uh, so we watched Apocalypse Now, available now on iTunes. Um, it's also the same version that you see in the Blu-ray version. Um, the uh, the original ending didn't have credits or anything like that. There was a release that came out in, I'm trying to find the exact year here. Uh, there's a 35 millimeter ending that came out. It doesn't show it, uh, but it ended up into rental prints circulated with a different ending where... Um, the credits are rolling mm-hmm. and they're showing just explosions going off in the jungle. 
And the problem with that mm-hmm. version that many people saw um, as the rental is that people interpret that as, well, um, chef called in the strike and everybody died, right. including mm-hmm. Willard at the end of the movie. So Kurtz and Willard yep. both die at the end through an, a giant airstrike. And that's how that is interpreted. Right. Uh, Coppola didn't intend that to happen, so he yanked that. But I guess apparently it's there in a bunch of bootlegs that that you mm-hmm. can find everywhere else. But I was talking with a fellow faculty member and our provost the uh, last week because um, a lot of people are interested in this idea of what we're doing with Zach on film, uh, and a lot of people really think it's a great idea that we're forcing young Zach here <laughs> to <laughs> be indoctrinated into yes. in, into culture this way. And um, they really find it they find it a fascinating experiment. And I'm, I'm glad I'm, you know, uh, the whole idea yeah, sure. is to expose Zach to these films that he's never seen and see if it influences him or gives him perspective of where <laughs> other films and other creators came from and what their influences were. Um, <laughs> and since it's a podcast and not it's not an experiment, we can't get in trouble for human experimentation like you well, would. No, if this were oh, true, if this were a true experiment, <laughs> just the fact that it has human subjects, we'd have to go through a uh, a review board yeah. to get yeah, it yeah, electrodes it, in it his brain. Wa- you get a bunch of it, like mice even, to watch the no, films even, first. E- no, even today, even if you're doing a survey that involves human subjects, <laughs> even if it's like a fill in the blank survey, mm-hmm. you have to go through the. Uh, through the uh, research board the to board get approval. It's not the board of ethics. Cause it's not called that. Ours is called the CBA. Um, other Ooh. universities may have, have them listed as something else, but it's basically there to make sure that your research follows the proper guidelines when dealing with human subjects, that they're not being forced or compelled to do this. Um, those kinds of things. Um, so that's why we really can't use this as, <laughs> as research. Cause we are forcing Zach yeah. uh, to watch these films. But I was, so I was talking to the provost and, and he said, Oh, so what's, what's the next film that you're watching? And this was, Right after um, we had watched the thing and I said, oh, the next film is Apocalypse Now. And both he and the other faculty member were like, oh, are you watching the original release or are you watching Redux? And I was like, well, we typically always watch the original release if it's available. I think Blade Runner may have been the only one where we saw it in a couple of different versions, depending on who watched it. But afterwards, you know, after I was telling them about, you know, why Apocalypse Now and 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 this, they were like, you really they both together were like, you really need to watch the redux. And I said, Oh, is it really that different? And they're like, well, the, the mission is the same. The end of the uh, journey is the same, but how they get there is really different. And according to the faculty member is a lot more disturbing than, than what we saw in apocalypse. Now, even though it's just re-editing and adding some stuff in, Mm -hmm. I guess there's like 49 minutes of, of stuff added in, but they said it really comes into a different story. Now, you know, iTunes, you can get them both. And yeah. I think I, I think I bought them both as in that package. Um, you can get the um, Apocalypse Now complete dossier DVD that includes both Redux and the original. And I believe Hearts of Darkness, the documentary that comes oh, in with that. Um, so I think I'm going to sit down this weekend if I have, have time and watch Redux. I'm interested to see just how different that is from the storytelling perspective. And, you know, often t- giving directors time to move things around can actually improve the story. And I think I've mentioned this before on one of our other podcasts, the major spoilers podcast, which talks more about comic books, how I think that the director's cut of daredevil is actually a much, much better movie than the theatrical release and actually redeems the movie uh, quite a bit just because the director is able to, well, let's add in this part, let's remove this part and let's restructure the story. So it makes a lot more sense. So and if I want to feel bad for three hours, I'll go run a five. <laughs> <laughs> um, so nobody's seen the redux. I'm going to tr- 
check it out and see what it's about. Zach, what are some um, what are some things that you learn from this movie, either from a technical side or a storytelling side or whatever um, that you can take away here? Um, there are uh, a couple shots that stood out to me um, as possibly influential as what we see now is I don't remember what giant fight scene it might have been. Might have been the beach storming. It could have been something else. Um, where you get shots like down from the barrel of the gun towards the person firing it, you have mm, like that mm-hmm. point of view. Or mm-hmm. they do it a lot, especially in Breaking Bad. They did it a whole lot, where they like attach a camera to like a shovel or something, so you right. get that one figure in the middle of the frame, and then everything is moving behind them. Mm-hmm. I think we've been seeing that a lot in the last couple of years in films, where they do a shot like that. And so I don't know if this is the first place that was used. Um, I'm guess probably not. Probably goes farther back than that, but uh, influential thing. Um, I thought the editing of this film was intense, uh, especially when they start doing like triple cross fades of shots. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you get a whole lot of crazy stuff. Um, the sinking of what's on screen to a sound that is not being portrayed in the image, like, like the uh, fan and the helicopter. That's, blades. that's it's a big thing. There's a documentary, um, uh, movie magic. I think it's, it's about e- editing mm-hmm. and merch is in there talking about how there's this magic that comes from sound and sound editing where you're hearing this helicopter and you're seeing shots of a helicopter in slow motion, but then you're cutting to the shots of a fan and the way it's edited and the way the fan's turning, you can actually, is this the sound of a helicopter? Mm-hmm. Is this the sound of the fan blades? Yeah. What's really going on in here? And he, he says when he was editing Apocalypse Now, and I think this, he was having some trouble editing it in the beginning. And then he got to this one part where he's editing that opening sequence. And he said he was so scared. It's so startling how the audio and the imagery lined up together. It frightened him and he jumped back from the edit system. But he knew that now he knew how this film was going to be put together. Mm. So it's interesting that you, yeah, yeah, that you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sound is like uh, apocalypse now is worth watching for, is worth puking into a bucket for the sound design. <laughs> the one thing that I it. wish I would have done. Everything. Got, go ahead. Uh, everything from the matched um, sound effects to kind of uh, the, the things that they don't belong to, to kind of uh, you know just hearing the the way that uh, things are highlighted or kind of like moved into the background, and of course uh, the the choice of uh, having so much doors music, which is like you know like putting if good you call. yeah yeah it's a it's a it's a good call. The doors are music for jumping into a void too. <laughs> so uh, it it if you want to. If, if if put something in your mouth so you don't swallow your own tongue and watch Apocalypse Now, um, <laughs> just just for the sound design. Yeah. Well, and that's the one thing. Even though I've got a five one surround system in the home theater, I really wanted to crank this up because um, all of the all of the stock audio that they had for this film didn't work in the surround sound that they were doing. So the merch had to go out and really have them recapture all the audio for this piece. Um, and mix it into a surround sound print. And I really want to crank it up because in the Rite of Valkyrie sequence, apparently when you're sitting in the theater, the way the sound system works is the helicopters are flying over and you hear them coming from the back of the theater 
and then the surround sound mixes uh-huh. it all the way so that as they're flying over on the screen, you hear them come over your head and onto the screen uh, for that. I actually um, watched wow. most of this movie That's with awesome. uh, my headphones on mm-hmm. because I knew I'd probably get a better audio uh, take of the film yeah. than just pulling it off the back of my iMac speakers. Cause I knew, I remember, and, how did it, and did you hear that in the piece, even though you weren't 5'1"? Oh, I don't, okay. I don't right. remember. I just remember the sound sounded nice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Really See, nice. I got I got a Sylvania TV with a little speaker in the front, and it goes, <laughs> but it was really impressive, even on that crappy television, let so, me tell you. Little speaker in the front, party in the back. Yeah, yeah. What else did you pick little up speaker in this movie? In the front. Uh, let me look. Um, I mean, I kind of touched on the fact that it felt like each scene was its own little short film and with connected mm-hmm. with the river which mm-hmm. i thought was nice and that whole last american outpost scene mm-hmm. i thought was just so interesting visually that i was super captured because that's the point of the film where they walk into the trees and there's that giant bright light behind them and they're cutting through the cutting through the light in the trees which that shot was just pretty yep. fantastic um, point, point of no return. Yeah. Uh, da, 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 da. Um. Oh, I mean, talking about just another shots I like. Uh, going up the river right before all the rockets start firing at them, where they're um stuck on uh uh, uh Lawrence Fishburne's character, and there's like a, a rocket flies right at the camera. Right. That was just awesome. That was just the start of a nice scene. And how in the heck could they control rocket that? Well, I don't know, but it was pretty cool. Magic. Now, you had mentioned did you, the... Uh, did you see Arlie Ermey? I don't know who that is. Oh, yeah. He's the, the, uh, the full metal jacket, the drill instructor. You know him as... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Use Sergeant Hartman. Hartman. Move it, move Private. it. Ah. Yeah, yeah. I was seeing the beginning. He was he one was, of the pilots yeah. early in the film. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And you can, you can actually hear and recognize his voice at one point. He's like, Delta 9559er private pile. What is your major <laughs> malfunction? Yep, yep. It's awesome. Yep. Um, you said the fiance was watching this with you. Yeah, she watched the last hour ish. What'd you think? Um, I think she. I think she. Steven's I, weird. She, Stop making. No. Stop watching the movies that he's yeah. telling you to watch. I, I, I think she was more uh, caught up in the film than I thought she would be. Um, I mean, we got to the ending, and it just goes to black. Oh yeah, yeah. And she goes, "Well, that was weird." But um, I think she was certainly more into the film than I I thought. I asked if she wanted to go watch the beginning of the film again because I had about I had about that much time left on my iTunes rental, mm-hmm. and she was like, eh, "No, I don't think so." So there you go. Okay, smart woman. How did uh, How did uh, Zach do this week, Rodrigo? I thought he did well. Um, he's thinking about the material critically, looking at both themes and um, production aspects, and very intelligently letting us talk, like not not volunteering any information until we accost him about it, uh, which is really how you pass classes. Um, so uh, I'd say I'd say he passes. Matthew. Well. I have to say, would Zach live his life again in every detail of desire, temptation, and surrender during that supreme moment, wishing he'd never seen Apocalypse Now? Would he cry out a whisper at some image, at some vision? Would he cry out twice? No. And cry no more? 
Probably not. Probably not. So yeah, I think he did really well. And I give you a check mark. I, I, you know, I was distracted by my dislike of the film. So (laughs) good check mark for Zach. All right, check mark. Let's move away from check mark from Stephen is an A minus. Let's move away from uh, the horror, the horror, and uh, give you your pick here. You're gonna pick for next. Yeah, I like these. We can either watch Rocky. Okay. We can watch Snatch. Okay. Or we can watch um, The Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski. Okay, Big Lebowski it is. And uh, uh, there you go. That's the next film for Zach on Film. Uh, make sure you over to the podcast posting page over at Majorspoilers.com to give your thoughts about Apocalypse Now um, and all that entails. While you're there, click on the Amazon.com link to buy your own Blu-ray copy of Apocalypse Now or Apocalypse Now Redux. Or buy them both together. Yeah, or buy them both together and get uh, uh, all the apocalypse now you could possibly want to fit in your life. Um, Is that all I'm supposed to say? I think so. It's been a while. Um, See you next week. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everybody. I forgot. I forgot. I forgot the rest of the stuff.